Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Ladies, we know what we want from our birth control, but what about what's in our birth control? That's why I chose the 100% hormone-free Paragard intrauterine copper contraceptive It's the only birth control that uses just one simple active ingredient to prevent pregnancy over 99% of the time, with no hormones and no daily routines. Paragard is a small IUD that prevents pregnancy for up to 10 years using copper. Ready to get what you want? Talk to your healthcare provider to see if Paragard could be right for you. Don't use if you have a pelvic infection including PID, get infections easily, certain cancers, Wilson's disease, or a copper allergy. Pregnancy is rare but can be life-threatening and cause infertility or loss of pregnancy. Paragard may attach to or go through the uterus. Tell your healthcare provider if you miss a period, have abdominal pain, or it comes out. At first, periods may become heavier and longer with spotting in between. It won't protect against HIV or STDs. For product information or to learn more, visit Paragard.com. Want your business to have the best opportunity for success? Take a tip from tech industry leader Intel when you move or expand in Ohio. The new Silicon Heartland is the place forward-thinking business leaders find ample talent, a highly ranked business climate, convenient central location, plus an especially low-risk environment for site selection. Where else can you have all the room you need to grow while rubbing elbows with the giants in your industry? Visit successinohio.com today. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 58 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, better known by everyone by now, come on, as DCU. And whether you're driving off the lot or refinancing, DCU can help you save on your next auto loan with rates as low as 1.49% APR. You heard me right, 1.49 APR. Learn more at dcu.org slash auto. Insured by NCUA, membership required. That's dcu.org slash auto. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Jumptown Skydiving. Come on, you've always wanted to go skydiving at least once and check it off that bucket list. And coming out of COVID, why not? This is the best time to do it. And if you're going to go skydiving once in your life, why not go to America's oldest skydiving drop zone? Jumptown Skydiving is easily accessible off of Route 2 in Orange, Massachusetts. They're open seven days a week. And if you have a job that makes it tough to get time off on the weekends, don't worry. Jumptown's got your back. That's why they offer service industry discounts on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays for tandem skydives. You can make a tandem for $185. So why not get a big group of people from work together and go out and jump together? And if you're the ringleader, every person you bring gets you $10 off of your jump. If you bring a group of 10 or more, you jump free. There's nothing like being in a plane from 13,000 feet up and jumping out. Get more details at jumptown.com 
or to make a reservation, call 978-544-5321. Okay, the guys on this week's episode are living rock and roll legends. Danny and Waddy from the immediate family have rock credits that run so long, I'm going to try and read what their bio says because it's ridiculous. Their band is four of the most recorded, respected, and sought-after players in modern music. Danny Korchmore and Waddy Wachtel are frequent collaborators both in the studio and on stage and have worked with artists like Jackson Brown, James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, Stevie Nicks, Keith Richards, Warren Zevon, Graham Nash, Neil Young, David Crosby, and many, 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 many more. Danny's credits as a guitar player, producer, songwriter, and session musician include James Taylor, Don Henley, Carol King, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, and Billy Joel, among others. And he's both written and collaborated on numerous artist tracks that are as recognizable as Don Henley's Dirty Laundry, All She Wants to Do is Dance, and New York Minute, as well as Jackson Brown's Somebody's Baby and Shaky Town. And Wadi Wachtel has worked with many of the same artists, as well as the Rolling Stones, Keith Richards, Stevie Nicks, Randy Newman, Brian Ferry, and the late Warren Zevon. And his production work includes Keith Richards, Brian Ferry, George Thorogood, and The Church. See, I told you it was impressive. Their EP, Can't Stop Progress, came out earlier this year, and they've got more new music and a tour on the way in 2021. I wanted to talk to Danny and Wadi about crafting a song, how they bring something from an idea to a finished song. And if not for them, working on songs with other artists. They're such prolific songwriters and producers and session players. And I found their insight on song crafting and their history as musicians to be so fascinating. I also love the way they casually bring up names like Keith and Ringo. And the corresponding playlist for this episode rocks. These guys are total rock and roll royalty, and I am so excited for you to get to know them. So allow me to introduce you to Danny and Wadi from The Immediate Family. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. This is the only way we've seen each other for uh, a year and a half. Well, basically. I'm happy that I got to reunite you virtually anyway. <laughs> Me too. 
Danny and Wadi from the immediate family, when I found out I was going to talk to you guys, I've spent the last 22 years talking to rock bands. And how do you prepare an interview for guys that are behind basically all the songs of the last 30 plus years in rock and roll? Your resume is so unbelievable. How are there songs left to write that you haven't written them yet? There's always new stuff. There's always They're stuff. out there. Yeah. There's always new stuff and always new ideas yeah. that, that come to us, especially since we have this band and, uh, and an outlet for those songs. So, yeah. I talk to songwriters all the time about where their inspiration comes from and where the idea comes from. And I know separately you have your own workflow. And then obviously as members of the immediate family, you're working on songs together. Do you guys mind talking about what your individual writing process is like and then how you bring five separate writing processes into this band? No, not at all. I mean, uh, I think everyone's writing process usually centers around anything. You know, you're, when you're a songwriter, you're constantly thinking about it. You're, you're constantly hearing sounds that remind you of something or aim you towards something, or you're looking for sentences and phrases that work. And uh, Danny is the best that he's got a book full of lines and, and quotes and, uh, I've collected them. I, I do it more audio-wise, but uh, you're just grabbing anything you can, trying to find that inspiration, you know. And uh, it's it's always there too. You just have to find it. You have to be open to it and ready to receive it. And then and bring it into the band is that's the joy of us getting to collaborate on stuff. Right. What about you, Danny? What was the question again? Just, just about your own personal writing style and what your, what your writing process is like crafting a song from the very start. Well, you know, uh, just like Wad said, we're always open and listening for new ideas and new stuff. Anything that comes along, a phrase, if I hear a phrase on the street or a phrase someone says, or if I read it in a book or, or anything, I'll, I'll, I'll write it down and remember it and think about using it in a song. And then when a song comes along, another idea comes along where that phrase works, you throw it in and you just go through everything you have all the time. Yeah. Uh, fortunately for me, I come up with stuff and I can bounce it off Wadi and, and uh, between the two of us, usually we can make something really terrific happen uh, between the two of us. So it works out very well. Do you guys have notebooks on the nightstand to be able to capture these ideas like in the middle of the night or have a place to write it down? Or are you, or are you relying on modern technology to do that now? Well, I prefer to sleep in the middle of the night if humanly possible. Um, <laughs> I didn't uh, know if something woke you up in the middle of the night that you wanted to be able to write it down right then. Well, sure. people have talked about that happening. I don't know. Why does that ever happen with you? Well, yeah, it happened to me uh, recently. Remember, Danny, about uh, the song, A uh, Whole Lot of Rock and Roll? I had a, I had a dream, um, and it, within the dream, something stirred me, and then... Uh, one of my dogs woke me up and, and I was really angry. He goes, oh man, what don't, but I had to capture what I said. So I just spit it into my phone and uh, spit these couple of lines into the phone. And uh, next thing I knew by seven in the morning, I'd written a song because uh, yeah, it happens. It, it actually happened to me that way. I know the famous one is Keith with uh, satisfaction, waking up and hearing what he <laughs> mumbled into his cassette machine and not even remembering it. Uh, so yeah, it definitely happens. Yeah. Can you give me an example, Danny, about 
a lyric or a phrase or something you heard on the street, you wrote it down, and it became something later that we all know and recognize, but something that you pulled it out long after the fact. Well, I mean, um, let me see. All she wants to do is dance, is a phrase that would rattle around in my head, and then suddenly it became a song um, that I uh, was able to create for uh, Don Henley. And uh, the phrase came first. Uh, I don't remember where I heard it from, but I heard it somewhere. And uh, But I twisted it into my, uh, my own story, the story I wanted to tell using that phrase. So uh, uh, that's one example, I guess. I love the description of your band, that you're a cover band that plays originals. When I heard that, I just busted out laughing because I can't think of another band that can actually use that phrase that accurately describes them. That's right. We're the only one. (laughs) So when people come to see you, are they surprised when you start playing all of these songs that, that you worked on either individually or or collectively in the studio with all of these other artists, because you could fill a five hour set with songs everybody knows, but they might not know you guys were the ones behind the recordings. I think some people know know that we wrote it, and, and a lot of people are surprised because uh, we announced, you know, that this is a tune so that that I that I wrote or Wad wrote that so and so recorded. So, but a lot of them are uh, people. Are, a lot of our people that come to see us are familiar that and know our association with this uh, material we're going to do. Can you guys take me back to the start when you were younger? I'm fascinated because I'm not a musician and don't have your ability of when it is you recognized it when you were young and what got you into, like what made you pick up a guitar the first time? Do you remember what your first guitar was? My, uh, for me, my first guitar was called a uh, Kamiko, which is not a very uh, known brand, but it actually still exists. I did look it up the other day on on Google, and there's still Kamiko guitars are available in the world. But um, I was uh, I was always singing music songs when I was growing up, very young, and I, th- I thought everyone else was. I, I figured everybody did the same thing, and then I noticed I was the only one that knew the words to all these songs, and I knew how to sing them. And and then I saw a guitar on television when I was about five years old, and I was hypnotized by it. And I asked my mother what that was. She said, that's a guitar. And I said, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. And she goes, you're five years old. What are you talking about? And uh, I said, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I want to do. I'm going to play guitar. And um, so that was it, uh, basically. And I was married to the idea. And by when I finally got my first guitar, I was nine. My father put me off for another four years. But uh, then I started playing when I was nine years old. So but the music just had me before I realized it was a, a special thing. I thought, like I said, I thought everybody was the same. You know, you think everybody's, everybody likes the same food, everybody likes the same TV shows. So everybody must be singing the same songs. And I'd say, you know, let's sing that song. People would look at me like, what? I don't know that song. What do you mean you don't know it? How could you not know it, you know? So, so yeah, I was uh, addicted a long time ago. What about hey, you, Danny? Man. Well, let me see. Um, <clears throat> when I was 10 years old, my mother thought, I would look cute with a guitar. She'd already <laughs> tried. She already tried piano lessons. That didn't work. I hated it. Yeah, so she got me a Stella guitar, a cheap Stella guitar. But I looked at it. and I went, "Oh, you know." And I sat down and was taking guitar lessons right away. Like that. And I hated it. It was like, "Oh God," you know. <laughs> then one day, 
I hit an E chord and an A chord and a B chord. Those, the, four, the three chords with which you can play every rock and roll song. And at that point, the heavens parted, uh, the seas parted, everything parted. The sun came out, angels started singing. And I realized exactly what my goal was. And it, that was the first thing in my life that flipped me out. And it really turned me on. So I never looked back. There, there are always two musical milestones for any music lover. There's the music that you get exposed to by an older generation, which is your parents, the older siblings, the cool uncle, whoever it is. And then there's the moment where you discover your own generation's music. For me, I grew up, the soundtrack to my house was everything from the association and Three Dog Night, anything that had horns in it, my dad loved, and my mom loved the Beatles. But for me, my music, the first records I bought were... 80s heavy metal that was that was me having my own musical taste you know van halen and def leppard and so what were you guys exposed to growing up and then what was the moment where you took control of your own music and and what was it that made you become who you are now i don't know oh, okay i'll go i'll start then yeah, let me see. Um, when I was about seven or eight or nine years old, um, my mother, I just drive around the car with my mother to drive into the city. And uh, she would turn on Martin Block's Make Believe Ballroom, which was all Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Perry Como. How much is that doggy in the window? That stuff. And I would yawn through it. And then one day, Little Richard came on doing Tutti Frutti. And the hair on all my hair stood up. And I went, boing, that was it. And that was the first day. The, the, so I would have to say first generation of rock and roll is what got to me first. And that's what that's what turned me on and killed me. Of course, I'm older than you. So um, like Fats Domino, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, of course, um, yeah, Carl Perkins, Elvis, all that stuff. That first generation of rock and roll just lit me up like a Christmas tree. Well, that's the thing. It doesn't matter what generation rock fan you are. We all have that moment where music becomes something that we take ownership of as opposed to what we've been exposed to by older people. Yeah. But I have to tell you a quote uh, from Tom Petty who said, every generation thinks that their, their music, the music they grew up with is like the greatest music ever. He says, in my case, it was true. <laughs> now, I realize that's, that's you can funny. argue with me about it, but I think Tom is right. I, I can't argue with Tom Petty, man. Not arguing with Tom Petty. Yep. That's great. What about you, Wadi? Well, like I said, I grew up singing anything I heard. So there was a lot of Frank Sinatra songs. There was a lot of Doris Day. There was Johnny Ray was the one that got to me the first, really. And I was and I was like, you know, imitating these people and singing these songs. And and then uh, and I'd started playing guitar already at nine. And this is a long time ago. This is we're talking about 1956, really. So. But all of a sudden, the first real rock and roll song that I heard was uh, Blue Suede Shoes, Carl Perkins. And I went out of my mind. I mean, I was always already plugged into music and, and so glad I was playing the guitar, but I didn't know what I was doing. I was just learning whatever I could hear. But when that happened, I was stymied by it. And then shortly after him came Elvis. And then after him came the Everlys. And by then... And also, we were both in New York City, so there was a lot of black music coming around the radios, too. But once I saw the Everleys and, you know, seeing these two unbelievable-looking guys with those big Gibson guitars singing that way, that was I was pretty much, 
I knew where I was headed, you know, and I was still, I was playing a lot of jazz stuff at that point. I thought you, you grow up, you play jazz guitar, you know, and slowly I realized the rock and roll was much more important to me and much more addictive for me. So I started, uh, even though I kept learning everything I could, rock and roll songs was where I wanted to go. And, and then doo-wop was coming on strong. And then up until, uh, you know, 60s and Beach Boys came, Four Seasons came, and then Hello Be the Beatles. And then, uh, you know, everybody, we know where we all went from there. And Stones, that was the final touch for me because I didn't really know a lot of blues. Danny knew a lot of blues songs when he was coming up somehow. But where I was in Jackson Heights, Queens, there wasn't a lot of blues. So all of a sudden there's the Rolling Stones doing these unbelievable funky sounding songs and just couldn't get enough of any of it and had to learn everything I heard and still do. <laughs> what is it like to go from the nine, 10 year old with those guitars to at that time having the conversation about this is what I'm gonna do and how do your parents, how do you have those conversations with where, cause that's the other thing about rock musicians. They're always that time when they make the decision that this is what I'm going to do and I'm not going to become the doctor or the lawyer that my mom wants me to be. How do you go from just being that kid taking the guitar lessons to being on the track to putting the section together? Well, you, you play music because you have to. You become a musician because you absolutely have to. If you don't have to, you'll do something else. The only people that stick with it and are lifers are people that have to do it. They have to do it with body and soul. And uh, at that point, the decision is kind of made for you. At least that was the case with me. The decision was made for me. I just, I, I had to do it. And I was a shy kid. I wasn't the kind of kid that was like, you know, I'm full of self-confidence and stuff. But I still went to all the clubs in New York and got rejected and thrown out. And it kept going back because I had to do it. I was driven to do it. I can't explain it to you any better than that, really. Yeah. My father wanted me to always have it as a, uh, have it a, as a hobby. I said, well, it is a hobby. He says, but, you know, you need to have another job. I said, I'm not going to have another job. This is it. Right. And uh, he didn't like it at all. He was very unhappy about it. And we argued and fought about it quite a bit um, until I got out to Los Angeles and uh, came home. And he came to see me playing with Linda Ronstadt at Forest Hill Stadium, which was down the road from where we lived. And, and he was... He couldn't believe it. He, he was over the moon. You know, he was still, he still wanted to fight it, but he couldn't anymore. He was really proud. It was nice to see because he, I never knew he, <laughs> he cared one iota about what I was doing, except that I was truant and uh, not keeping up my grades. And I was always playing the damn guitar. So he was uh, knocked out, but it, it, it was a bone of contention for a long time with us. You know, he didn't want to know about it. And I, I finally had to say one day, I'm, I'm moving to Los Angeles. I got to go. And he goes, you know what you're doing? I said, no, but I know that I can't do it here. I got to go. He goes, okay. What? <laughs> it was really a surprise. My brother, I have a brother who's a couple of years older than I, and, and I told him I was going to tell my old man that we had to go. He goes, oh, this is going to be a bad night. And uh, 20 minutes later, I sat down with my brother and I said, he said, okay. He goes, what? <laughs> he said, he says, you know, my father said, Bobby, you know, you always give me a hard time, but you always seem to know what it is you want to do. You know what you're doing. So what can I say? You know, just be careful. 
As the older sibling, the younger sibling always gets it easy. I'm the oldest, so we always get it harder. Yeah. <laughs> Can you guys tell me about the day you met? Sure. Uh, okay, we had been hearing about each other for a while in L.A. This is, I guess, early 70s, mid early to mid-70s. And I'd been hearing about Waddy Wachtel, and I, I knew he was going to be, I knew he was a good player because the people that were saying he was good were people I respected. So at one point, our dear friend Lou Adler, who's one of the great producers ever in music, called both of us to come play on a session. And the session was for a cat named Tim Curry, who's a terrific actor and uh, singer and rock and roll, a great guy too. And uh, Lou had it in his mind that he wanted both us, both Waddy and me to play <coughs> on, uh, on these sessions. So I showed up and sure enough, here comes Waddy. <coughs> as soon as he walked in, for me, it was love at first sight. I took one look at him. I said, I know this guy. I mean, I don't know him, but I know him. And we sat down and we bonded over reggae. We both had a big, big love affair with reggae and started playing. The, I think the first tune was a reggae tune. Is that right? What? Yes. And uh, so we jumped in. Bam. That was it. We became instant, almost best friends that day. Yep. So uh, that's kind of the way it went down from my, my remembrance of it. Right. And for me, it was... I got here a couple of years after Danny did, and I wanted to be a session player. I came out with a band that never got anywhere. And, but in the years of not getting anywhere, I met some good producers who showed me, introduced me to a few session players. And I was thinking, I could do this. I think I'm good enough to do this. And, and then I'd be at home and I'm looking at these albums with Russ Kunkel, Lee Sklar, and Cooch, or Danny Korchmar. And I'm going, who's this guy Cooch? Who is this guy? Why does he get all this work? What the hell is this? Why can't I get arrested around here? What is this? And, and I built up this image of Danny. But like you said, as soon as we saw each other, it was like, I know this guy. I grew up with this guy. You know, we know, we know each other backwards and forwards the second we met. Right. And that's how we always have played together, too. It's exactly the same. We always know where the other guy's going to be and where we're not going to be. It's always been an easy meld you know, beyond even, there's no thinking involved, really. Right. And, and also, I want to say, that session, not only was it Danny and I, but it was also the, the first time the immediate family played together, because it was Russell and Leland. And it was the four of us were finally together all, all at once. I'd met Russ prior to that session. I'd worked with Leland before that session. But that was the first time we were all together. And, and that's really the group known as The Section. Well, no, that was... Well, they were the section, yes. But that was the that was the basis of the immediate family started that day, really. Recording with Tim Curry. Yeah. What was I'm a huge fan of his. So what was he like to work with? Because he's so he's so known more for his acting than his music. Very bright guy, very funny guy. Back then, I haven't seen him in years, but we all loved him. Very charming and and very funny and great to be around. Can you tell me when you thought you made it? Because never, never, never? still haven't. I don't think like no that. No. There wasn't a there wasn't a moment where you uh, could pay the rent a month ahead of time or something where you were like, "Wow, I might actually be pulling this off." <laughs> you know, you can you can pay the rent, but it's like it can all disappear the next hour. Right. There's never. You, you can't sit back on your laurels and think, oh, I've got it now. You know, let me order a Rolls Royce and let me uh, have some dinner at the Palm tonight again. And uh, we're both of the same ilk. I mean, it, 
if that phone doesn't ring, if we don't have something to do, I, I feel I'll never work again. So right. it's never, never, we haven't made it by any means. My father thought I made it, but he was, he was wrong. <laughs> he was wrong a lot. <laughs> Well, that's what makes your career trajectory so interesting, because for music fans, the assumption is, um, you know, if you're a musician, you've got a band and that's what the band does. And so the idea of a section of these session players, these hired guns that get brought in kind of behind the scenes to help the quote-unquote superstars, the one that actually has their face on the album. I, I don't think a lot of people understand that, that, that there are that many people behind the scenes that are actually making this music because the person with their face on the album cover is the one that always gets the credit. Mm -hmm. Well, largely that's the way it ought to be. That's the artist, in it, and that's the, the focus of that album for that particular situation. The way records are made now, <clears throat> most of them, most pop records are made by one person on a computer uh, who does the whole track. <clears throat> then they bring someone in to write the lyrics and they bring someone into auto-tune the vocal and um, like that. They're made by committee, but basically devoid of musicianship altogether. Uh, most of it like is done all on, on a laptop or on a computer. That's very different than the way we came up where you go into a studio with four or five guys, <clears throat> all of whom are terrific players. And you'd sit down and, with an artist and, and come up with something right now, something groovy, and it's going to help the artist. It's going to help the song and do it right away. So there's that group, that, that collaborative effort that we don't see that much anymore. I thought that the, the Dave Grohl Foo Fighters documentary, um, where he moved to a different city and collaborated with different artists, was a really cool kind of tangible example of how you can have one group of artists and bring in one outside player or change the location or the studio or the equipment, and it can totally change the sound of a band you know, like the Foo Fighters. So for you guys, all working together as session players, bringing in, whether it's a James Taylor or a Stevie Nicks, that changes your band right based on the writing style for that artist that you're trying to help well yes and no what do you think about that one well you know I, I, that's kind of reverse to me we don't bring them in you know we we've had the good fortune to work with these amazing artists you know but uh you know i mean i'm not sure what you're saying because you know we we get brought in to bring what we bring to, to these artists. And, and that's been the key to what we do. I mean, sessions used to be, you come in, you do exactly what you're told. You play at a certain volume, you don't stretch out, you just lay it down, then you overdub something. But for myself and for Danny, we're, we, we get sparked so easily by music. And when you're in the middle of doing something in the studio, all of a sudden you get an idea, you hear something in your head and you go for it, you know, which we were growing up taught not to do, but it was, we couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. And that's Danny's the same way. You know, you hear something. So you throw it down instead of what's written on the page or whatever. And fortunately, we were right a lot of times. And that's what we got known for doing. And the same with Leland as well and Russell. We bring a certain thing to records and so all of a sudden we were getting hired to be us, 
rather than just be a studio player. You know, bring Cooch in here. I need what he does. You know, I don't, I'm not going to write out something for Danny to play. I want him to give me what he does. And right. same for me, you know, I'll, they'll tell me don't solo on something, but I'll hear it as it's going down and I know what should be there. So I'll, I'll throw it in. And, right. you know, sometimes you might get, you know, people yell at you and say, don't do that. But they stopped doing that because we were picking the right thing to do. And so that's, that's more the way we see it. You know, that's how we get brought in to do what we do for these amazing artists. But, uh, you know, we don't, nobody plays with us. <laughs> really. I mean, on Danny's solo record, we had the great fortune to have James singing. We had Dave Crosby, Michael McDonald, Jackson Brown. But on immediate family records, there's nobody. It's us. That's how we see it. It's our turn. You know, we have to, we have to do it that way. We have to show what we do. You know, to, to bring in James to sing on a song of ours would be like, we're back in the background. That's not at all the point of what we're doing. Right. Well, understand? Yeah, no, I totally, I totally understand. And, and because I'm not a musician, that's why I ask those questions because, you know, you, as a session player, like you said, you get, you get brought in to, to play the notes on the page, but then when you get brought in for your sound, your tone, your feel, uh, your lyrical styling, your singing vocals, you're being brought in to be your tasting spice in someone else's recipe. Whereas yeah. now with the immediate family, you are the recipe now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so when it comes to finally being able to work on your own songs with no outside influence, nobody on the, on the cover taking the, the credit or the glory or saying, Hey, listen, this is my album. I need it to kind of sound like this or whatever. Is that easier or is it easier, is it less pressure to be working on someone else's record? It's about the same. In other words, the pressure <clears throat> involves doing, having it come out great and having it be as great as you can possibly make it. You know, whoever we're playing for, we give everything we've got. You, you, you never phone it in. You always come up with the best stuff you can come with, regardless of who the artist is or what. You, we, you know, I think we speak for Wadi, we can't help it. We can't help but come up with stuff. It's, that's what we do. Yeah. The other thing you got to remember is that uh, us as players, we got to play with the best songwriters and singers you could ever imagine all through the 70s. So we have very high standards about what makes a good song. And uh, we also have high standards for ourselves about coming up with something great for this great song that James Taylor or Jackson or Warren wrote. So the pressure is, is self-created always. And it's always, let's do something terrific. Can you talk to me about technology I mean, coming up in the 70s, working with the biggest artists in, in arguably the, the greatest era in rock and roll, technology has changed so much. And it can make a lot of things easier, but it can also make it so that you can make things perfect when they should have a little imperfection in it. How, how do you guys ride that line? <laughs> Go ahead. Well, we try to... Uh do everything as humanly as possible, first of all, you know, and, uh, imperfection is, is part of the, the magic of music. And uh, sometimes a mistake in a record is the greatest thing that happens in it. And it causes the whole record to change. And, uh, but, you know, we, we, because we came up the way we did, we're, we're pretty traditional in our approach, even though 
we're in a studio now where it's very easy to, you know, oh, that, that note's flat, fix that note. You know, that drum beat's a little off. You know, the guitar note's flat. Can we tune it up? You know, you, you do take advantage of those things, but we try to just play and sing and, and do what we do. It's, it's, it's a challenge to not throw yourself into the magic of how easily it is to make a non-musician sound like a musician these days. Because that's the, that's the danger of that whole thing that's happened is that people who haven't spent their life trying to learn what their idols have done, trying to learn what the people they love have done, they just come and touch a keyboard and there's a drum beat. And then they, you know, and I'm not putting anyone down for it. I'm just saying it's an entirely different approach. And kids have grown up, you know, like for, for in a studio example, there's, there's engineers that work in studios these days that have never put microphones around a, a real drum kit. You know, they wouldn't know how to. They haven't got the slightest bit of information on how to do that because they've never had to do it. You know, for us, we're going, what mic is that? You know, something doesn't sound right. You know, it's, we're still, we're old fashioned, but we, we know how to use what's available to us. You know, and, and fortunately, some of the people around us know a lot more about it than, than either Danny or myself. So, uh, but it, it's a challenge to not let everything be automated. And it's a challenge we accept and, and kind of stay away from, if that makes any sense. I started asking songwriters this question. The answers are always fascinating. And I, I can't even imagine what your answer is going to be. So I'm going to ask you, for the prolific songwriters that you are, there's got to be a song from an artist, from an era, from a genre, it doesn't matter, that you look at and go, God, I wish I wrote that song. What, what, would it, what is it and why? Oh man, that's the where, question. Question. where do we start? Yeah, there's too uh, many. I mean, yeah, uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash. Okay, you know, that's a good place to start. Every time I hear it, I go, Why didn't I write that? It's perfect in every way. Uh, Revolution, Revolution by the Beatles, or yeah. Anyone Who Had a Heart by Burt Backrack. I mean, there you go. There's, there's a, you know, Please Let Me Wonder by Brian and the Beach Boys, or right. anything. There's so many. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of genius out there in, in what's been written already, and like I said, I've spent my life learning everything I hear. So, and and I haven't learned a third of the songs I want to learn. Mm-hmm. There's so many that baffle me. Like, how did the guy? How did they write that? You know. Well, that's the difference between a, a listener like me and someone that actually knows how to craft songs like you, that listens to the song differently than I would. We do listen differently, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's why, like, as you're listening to Jumpin' Jack Flash, you're going to notice things in it that might pass me by because I'm not a songwriter and a musician. So th- those are the little things that, that I always love to hear from the musicians because you, you can break down a song in a way that, that, a, that a regular listener just can't. Sure. I'll give you an example. On, on Jumpin' Jack, there's a, the bass line to that song is just like a one-note approach it's called pedaling where you just play this one note underneath what's going on on top of that great lick that keith is playing and one day keith we're listening it came on the radio or something and keith went oh man i blew it on the record i should have been the bass should have been playing that lick and i went no (laughs) no it shouldn't have you're not for once you're wrong 
you know, <laughs> you know, for once you're wrong, man. No, no, no. The bass is doing exactly what it should be doing. Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, really? I said, yeah, really. I said, well, I think so. <laughs> but it's, it's one's nature to second guess. It's all of our natures, including Keith's and everybody's to second guess. So couldn't it have been better? Couldn't it have, could have been different? It's right, just, yeah. that's just, that's just the human nature. Well, you have this album that has been years in the making that you finally get to come out. And recently, Ozzy gave a a quote about the record he's working on. He said that the album he's working on right now makes him feel like a pregnant hen, which I just thought was the most ridiculous Ozzy quote ever. But I understand the analogy that you have this thing that you've been working on and you finally want it to come out and, and enter the world and the immediate family finally, after what, two years, gets to release this record? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. We started, we, we made it damn near two years ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's been sitting around. It's very good and we're very proud of it. But uh, at this point, we've already started another record. You know, because, uh, you know, that's what we're doing. Because, you know, Wad and I are always writing. So we said, what the hell, let's just start, let's start up another one, you know. But the one that's going to come out, we're very proud of. It's all original material. And it's, uh, we're very proud of it. We think it's terrific. Can't wait for people to hear it. The, uh, the idea of working on an album, finishing it, and then having a global pandemic stop everything. Was there a discussion about maybe we should release it when everything is shut down? And what made you want to not release it until now? We pretty much uh, went with our, our management and record company uh, concept about what they wanted since they paid, paid for it. And uh, these guys were total experts at marketing and they knew they had a plan and we were loath to go against them uh, and, and to disagree with them in terms of what they wanted to happen. Also, there is a, uh, in the works, a documentary about us uh, being made by Denny Tedesco, who made the Wrecking Crew documentary. And he's, uh, it's already, we've already uh, interviewed maybe 30 different people that we played with. And so that's in the works too. So they're also the record company and everybody in our management are trying to coordinate the release of stuff so that it's, you know, it, it kind of coincide, coincides with the release of the movie. Right. And one other element of that is when you put out a record, you, you have to be able to tour it. That's the main advertising for that album. And uh, since that was an impossibility, it was, it was pretty much pointless to put the record out because there's no way we could go promote it. So we were forced to not release it, basically. Have you been working on new songs via Zoom? Um, we don't really, not, we don't work on songs that, via Zoom that much, uh, but we send ideas back and forth to each other. Yeah, and, uh, on, on the phone, when we couldn't see each other, we'd be on the phone yelling melodies or lines back and forth at each other and well, you know, yeah. getting together when we could, which was very rare. We didn't see each other for about six months there was a stretch where we just we saw each other like this once yeah. a week right and that was it you know so it's hard it was hard to collaborate but we found a way to do it uh you know like Watt said earlier about you just yelling something into the phone and then if, if it's got anything going it's, i send it to him he goes oh that's good and then he adds something sends it back to me changes it around it sends it back i go grooving like that so there's where there's a will there's a way let's put it like that yeah. you know where there's a desire to write Boy, we'll find a way to do it. You guys have had a front row seat to the greatest era of rock and roll. And there's always a lot of people that say with every generation of rock and roll, rock is dead. Rock is dead. It's, 
Can you, from your expert opinions, give me what you think the status of rock is and whether or not you think it's something that can ever die? No, no, it can't die. It's, it's been here as long, you know, longer than most other art forms. I mean, it's, uh, it's embedded in our life. It's, there's no, there's no such thing as rock and roll dying. <laughs> I wish some rock and roll would resurface because there's a lot of different versions of what they call rock music right now, but we're based in rock and roll music. And, uh, you know, aside from, and, and you're right, the seventies was an incredible Los Angeles in the early seventies was like Liverpool when the Beatles happened to me, it was this extraordinary cluster of the greatest musicians in this country all being together and helping each other. And, and it was an open, amazing time in life, but you know, you can't, you can't overlook the fifties and the sixties. And, you know, there's like Danny said, the first one here, little Richard, he lost his mind, you know, and same for me. And we grew up watching these R and B shows in New York city. And, you know, there's nothing like the, you know, those guys doing the, that stuff on stage. And then, and then this, when the sixties came and the, the whole English explosion, you know, but LA had a, 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 the seventies were America's version of it for sure. You know, but I don't think there's no rock and roll. It's not going anywhere. No, I don't think so. I don't see how it could. It's been here for too long. Yep. Well, guys, right. I, I'm so grateful for the generosity of your time. It was such an honor to meet you. And yes. I can't wait now that touring is happening for this record to come out and to be able to actually come out and see you play in person. Yeah, we can't wait to play in person. We're thrilled. We hope to see you as soon as possible. We're, we're hoping to get to the East coast, um, uh, sometime towards the end of the year. And, uh, we'd love to see you there. I will thank be there. So yeah. Come and see us. So I well. absolutely will guys. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great thank day. All, right. All the best to you. Bye. There they are. Danny and Wadi from the immediate family. All of the links to find out everything about the band are found in the show notes of this podcast. That's also where you can find the corresponding playlist. Every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast has a corresponding playlist that has all of the music we talked about in it. And we talked about some serious songs in this episode. All of my links are in the show notes of the podcast as well. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss anything from the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the Situation Report. All of your rock news and music headlines and entertainment info in less than five minutes. Thanks once again to our sponsors, Digital Federal Credit Union at dcu.org and Jumptown Skydiving at jumptown.com. Just a reminder to check out the official Mistress Carrie online store at mistresscarrie.com. And you can join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern for Cocktails in the War Room on my Facebook page. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.